welcome back to the Liberty Blues. I'm Sean Osborne. And I'm John Phillips. And I'm Steve Mirren. And we're very lucky today. We're joined by Spike Cohen. How's it going, Spike? And I'm Spike Cohen. I was going to do that. I'm doing great, Sean. Oh. Thank you guys for having me on. Oh, man. Uh, you're fresh off of Kennedy. That's cool. So uh, we're, we're, uh, we're the late night gig. You are the late night gig. It, it's it's unfortunate this is an audio only because then otherwise, if it were video, everyone would see that I'm in my spiffiest jacket and tie and my uh, my whole attire. But uh, yeah, no, I'm happy to be on. I really look forward to talking to you guys. Yeah, that's cool. So, um, you know, I've heard you on a lot of podcasts. And, you know, one thing I, I'd like to hear more you talk, talk about more is uh, the Radical Caucus, so, you know, because mm -hmm. I, I, I'm out here in Los Angeles. So I'm around Angela McArdle a lot. So I, I know quite a bit about the Mises Caucus. So can you tell us about the Radical Caucus? So the Radical Caucus uh, bills, the, and I should say ourselves, um, a bit of a caveat here. I'm a member of the Radical Caucus. I'm also a member of the Mises Caucus. I'm also a member of the Prague Caucus. Uh, I'm, I'm a member of all caucuses with the idea that I think that there is uh, many good things that come from all of them and that we need to be uniting together to fight for a world set free, which is what we're all fighting for. Now, with that said, uh, I definitely, of those three caucuses, I probably philosophically align the most with the radical caucus. I am an anarcho-capitalist. I am a radical. I am a believer in unapologetic radical messaging as a means of exciting people and getting people involved in the libertarian party and the liberty movement. Um, the radical caucus bills itself as the uh, I guess the compass or the conscience of the Libertarian Party. You know, whenever we might think of trying to water down our message or, you know, sway to public opinion, the Radical Caucus is there to say, absolutely not. This is what we believe. This is what our platform states. And in fact, not only that, we should take the most principled uh, uh, um, iteration or interpretation of what our platform says. We should be 100% libertarian all the time in what we present and in our philosophy and in our messaging. Uh, and I do agree with that. Um, so that's really the, the purpose of the Radical Caucus. This is actually the second Radical Caucus. Uh, there was one that existed earlier on in the, in the beginning of the, of the uh, Libertarian Party. Um, but this, uh, this one came back to basically do the same thing, to say, you know, we need not be watering down the message to be more electable, quote unquote. Uh, first of all, that doesn't work. Uh, you don't become more electable by being uninspiring. Uh, and second of all, if it did work, uh, and we were able to get elected by be something, being something less than what we actually believe and what we actually want, how does that make us any different than the Republicans and Democrats? Right. That's true. Um, so one of the radical points of view that uh, I'd like to talk to you about that uh, mm -hmm. kind of trips out a lot of people is like the, the idea of copyright law. Yes. Um, like where, where would a musician, where, like, where, how would you sell that? Cause I, I'm a musician. How would you like, what, what do you say musicians should do with that? Like intellectual property? Do they, just own their recording, but not the song? Or how's that work? So he, let's first talk about what the position is just to make it clear so everyone's on the same table. Uh, we believe in the most strict propertarian um, assertion of what property is. In order for something to be property, it has to be scarce and non-replicable. So I own this bottle of water. I can make another bottle of water just like it, but not this exact bottle of water. So this exact bottle of water, because I own it, I can choose what I want to do with it. I can give it to you. I can sell it to you. I can keep it for myself. I can lend it to you. I can share it with you. I can do whatever you want, but you can't take it from me because it's my property. Intellectual property, copyright laws, trademarks, patents, 
patents, they are the idea that you can patent or trademark or get protection as property of an idea. And the problem with that is that it's the logical conclusion of that is for me to say something to you that becomes an idea in your head. And I say, you can never say or think that without paying me for it because I gave you that idea. So that's why we're against the idea of IP. Now, it's great for me to say that, but like you said, where does that leave musicians? Where does that leave artists? Where does that leave all of us? And we actually know the, the answer to that is that by not giving people the opportunity to be able to patent up every single work of art or anything that ever happens, it actually free up, frees up for there to be more creativity in the music sphere. So if I were, for example, to write a computer program that made every song ever, it, it, it took every single potential combination of musical notes and made that a song, and then we immediately went for the patent for that song, I could patent up every unused combination of, of, of songs ever, and no one could use it without my licensing. So again, that doesn't fully answer your question. It explains why this is a bad idea to, to get into copywriting songs and works of art and things like that, but it doesn't speak to your question. What do you do? Well, first of all, in this age, it is easier than ever to be able to monetize your art, your, your act of art, because first of all, it is easier than ever for you to demonstrate that you were the person who put it out there and, and someone else can't just go and, and you know, release it because you can put it on the internet and show that it was you first. You can utilize technologies like NFTs, which actually are the propertyization of your act of, uh, your, your work of art. Uh, you can do things like live performances. You can do things like what Nine Inch Nails and other artists do, Wu-Tang Clan, where they'll make a, a limited edition set of their, of their specific works of art or, or, or works of music to sell that way. You can do in-person events. You can, when someone is consuming your product of art or music, they're not just consuming that music. It's not just that they like that song. It very often becomes that they like you and they like what you represent in that music. And so you can monetize that as part of that experience of people wanting to be closer to the artist, either through coming to a concert or a VIP experience or you know buying a signed piece of art or merchandise or something like that. Um, but the, the, the problem with trying to say, this combination of musical notes is my property brings us into a really bad place where someone could take every possible conceivable uh, uh, act of, of music that hasn't yet been copyrighted and copyright it. And, and now what? Now, now, now what's left for you to be able to create? Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I'd always thought it's, it's good the more people that can hear your music because it's really your, your advertisement. Because even historically, yes. people have not made the majority of their money is not made from album sales. Uh, maybe if it's used in a movie or something, they make more money. But, you know, you, you make the majority of your money touring and from merchandise, right. not, you know, the record companies are ever, never going to pay you that much. And unfortunately, Spotify and Apple and things like that don't don't pay a hell of a lot either. So and the other that's pretty 
And the other aspect of that is if you're the actual performer, no one can truly perform it like you, right? Someone can do it as a cover or something like that. And even if they try to sell it as their original work, you can show you did it first, which makes you more authentic and you can do it, you know, your special way that's better than anyone else. So, and like you said, it, it's, that has always been a, a lagging indicator in terms of, of, of who, where most of the money for a musical artist is going to come from. What this does is it ends this, um, an IP in general is this, this weird rat race where you have maybe two or three or four different people that are all moving to innovate towards the same product and whichever one gets there first they get all of the protection and the other ones are screwed they get none of the protection that actually discourages innovation but when it comes to mu musical artistry it's obviously a lot different than you know for example patenting a, a an invention or something like that but in the same line of thought, it's more about who you are as the artist and, and, and selling that experience than trying to hoard musical notes that you put together. And then again, because you get the government involved in this, that you end up with a situation like with the Katy Perry song, where this uh, Christian art, uh, uh, rap group came uh, seven, several years later, and they claimed that a part of the song, like four notes together, uh, was similar, close enough to theirs that they could prove that, uh, that you know, she had copied it from the, the songs sounded nothing like each other but they were able to get some you know expert sounding person to say yeah well, technically this is kind of the same thing in this one little three second clip and that led a jury to say okay yeah no you have to give him uh your your profits or share your profits with him it getting government involved is just a bad way to do things in general and that includes with this how, how would how would uh like uh you, you talk a lot about the copyrights with medicine as well you want to talk mm -hmm. to people about that a little bit well, we see exactly what a mess that is, right? Insulin yeah. and epinephrine have been around since longer than any human being, well, almost any human being on earth has been alive. And yet there are companies right now, just in this country, not other ones where it's made for pennies, but in this country where they're able to make negligent changes to the formulary of usually of how it's delivered, not even the actual active ingredient itself. And then they call it a brand new patent and they push for regulations to not just protect their patent, but also to make all the old, older generic versions uh, not approved for that use anymore. And they use that from the profits they get from their newly patented products. Um, and so this is what ends up making something like insulin cost thousands of dollars a month if you don't have insurance. And if you do have insurance, it's making the insurance company pay thousands of dollars a month for it. When this is a drug that costs pennies, you know, my, my friend Dan Berman is, is down in Texas. He goes into Mexico. He, uh, he, he buys uh, insulin for pennies, uh, it, like insulin pens and, and EpiPens for, for pennies. Then he goes back to Texas and sells them at cost for just a couple bucks each. Um, and he's doing it completely illegally and, and out in the open and saying, this is the exact same pen that's being made and imported here under this name brand, but I can sell it to you for a couple bucks because I just bought it over there. If you try to buy it in your pharmacy, you're spending hundreds of dollars to be able to do it. That's what IP leads to. That's badass. Hey, Spike, this is John Phillips. I, I wanted to uh, talk about one of the potential problems with um, kind of open IP, and that is, okay. uh, for example, if, if I really like Coca-Cola or a certain name brand, and I want to go out and find that, see, I, I only really like Coke, and I have that you know, for years growing up, and then I'm trying to buy it, but I go out there and somebody else is putting the exact same um, 
marketing the exact same label on something else and it's not that same thing. And as a consumer, I'm sort of confused. I'm trying to find that same thing that I really like, but I'm not able to because somebody else, there's, there's that confusion in the marketplace. Yeah, and that's actually a good point, John. I mean, the one thing I would say is, again, with the technology we have now, a company like Coke could very easily, in fact, what a great marketing gimmick, right? If I'm Coca-Cola and, I, and, and I'm not dealing with IP anymore, and I hear there are these other companies selling, literally selling Coca-Cola with the exact same branding and the exact same shape of the bottle and the exact same everything, what a great opportunity for me to say, hey, folks, Coca-Cola is so fantastic that there are companies making the exact same thing we make. But of course, they can't make it as good as us. We've been making it for over 100 and some odd years. And so what we have now is a QR code. And when you're buying Coca-Cola, don't be fooled. Make sure it's got the QR code and you scan it on your phone and make sure you're getting real legitimate Coca-Cola straight from the Coca-Cola verification app. Like literally, you will now have other companies that are, you know, riding my coattails uh, because of my product being so fantastic and so popular that I can actually leverage the fact that, you know, they're, that they're imitating me as the sincerest form of flattery to push for people to go, wow, this Coke's so great, man, I better make sure this is the right, even though it's the same damn thing to go, yeah, I better make sure this is the right thing. You actually have people scrambling to make sure it's got the right QR code and going to the right, you know, app or URL or whatever. You got people downloading the app. So now I can capture their information and send them emails and notifications on their phone. So it's, it's, you know, with anything, if you have a good eye for marketing, and, 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 and advertising and management, you know, this was something I'd never really thought about before, but in this moment, I was able to come up with that. And I'm sure that the advertising geniuses behind some of these amazing brands can come up with even better ideas. You know, this right. is what happens when you set the market free. Gotta love innovation. And there's, and, and I want to, I want to make something clear because we could come up, if we sat here long enough, we could come up with all sorts of examples where people would get screwed over in this process. I'm not going to pretend that's not the case. You know, we saw where J.R.R. Tolkien, when he wrote The Hobbit, and then other people started writing The Hobbit, and this was before the, the modern IP that we have now. And he used pressure campaigns and things like that to get people to, you know, to carry the right the, the, the correct published version that he did under his publishing company so that he got royalties for it, but I'm sure he missed out on some money. The reality is there is no system that's going to be perfect. But what we currently have is a system that lets companies like Apple and Samsung have entire legal wings that do nothing uh, in their company, but make these ridiculous, vaguely worded patents and get them passed all day long when other companies would not be able to do with that, but they have the big time attorneys to push it. And then they just wait for anyone to make anything that's even remotely shaped or, or, or functioning similarly to that, to all these different vaguely worded patents. And then they go after them for the licensing fees and put them out of business and start selling it themselves. So there's not any good system, but this one actually sets the market free. That's cool. You know, it is, it is actually kind of expensive to copyright your songs. You used to be able to do 75 bucks for three of them when it wasn't digital. Then it went to, I can't remember, it was something you could do unlimited numbers. And now yeah. it's the same price, but you, could, you can do 10 or less as long as they're not over 10 minute songs or anything like that. So kind of kills classical or, you know, really good old exactly. school metal. You know, you've so now got, you you've got songs that are intentionally being limited in length in order to comply with some kind of vague property description. This is what happens when the government gets involved. Yeah. So let's take a little break real quick and come back and talk about some criminal justice reform. If you sure. guys don't have any other questions, you have any questions, Steve? I forgot to even ask. 
No, I'm, I'm actually good. This is fascinating. All right, cool. So we'll take a little break and be right back with some criminal justice talk. Hi, thanks for listening to the Liberty Blues Network. Make sure and check out all three podcasts on our network. We have the Liberty Blues, a progressive and a libertarian walking to a bar, and libertarian Los Angeles. Let us know what you think of the podcast and rate, review, follow, or whatever you can, wherever you listen. Thanks. Now back to the show. All right, we're back. So let's talk about criminal justice reform, you know, because uh, people on the left, being all woke and such as they are, seem to think that they have all the right answers. I think they have, I think they see a lot of the right, uh, like, same problems as us libertarians, but not necessarily all the right answers. You know, I, I want I want to legalize drugs. I'm not even just down with decriminalizing. I think they should be legalized. So you want to talk a little bit about that, Spike? Sure. I, I you know, this is an interesting thing where conservatives and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, broadly speaking, they both get half of it right. So liberals, progressives, uh, Democrats, whatever you want to call them, uh, they often get right the fact that the law enforcement mechanism uh, of the government is often heavy handed and abusive and unaccountable and inequitable uh, in how they enforce the laws uh, and that these laws are often used and abused against the most marginalized among us, the, the poorest among us, the people who are the least likely to be able to defend themselves in the criminal justice system and that they're abused and when they're in the justice system, that they're over criminalized, that they, you know, they end up with a, a criminal record that they can't escape and that it's just a bad system. But then they'll turn around and, and, and push for endless new laws that are going to be enforced the exact same way as all the laws that are currently being enforced. You see this with the uh, the left right now. You know they're pushing to ban menthols. Uh, well, what do you think is going to happen from that? You know the, who's smoking menthols? Overwhelmingly, it's black and brown people. So who's going to get punished for that? Overwhelmingly, it's going to be black black and brown people. This is just like what they did with crack in the '80s. So they get part of it right, but then they go spectacularly wrong when it comes to how you can actually fix it. Conservatives are the flip side of that. They often understand that a government, when it makes too many laws, just creates too much of a hassle and you know makes our lives more difficult. And that you know government in general, or at least in theory, uh, should be staying out of our lives and letting people live their lives as they see fit, not telling us, not just ordering us around this big nanny state, telling us how to live our life and then cleaning up after us if we make a mess and all of this stuff. But then uh, when it comes to the actual enforcement, they say, well, no, the law enforcement is the thin blue line that protects us from the barbarian hordes that want to take everything from us. And, you know, the criminal justice system is keeping us safe by putting them in a cage where they can't hurt us and all this stuff. And it's like they both if we could get what they what the what the the progressives often get right about the enforcement mechanism and what conservatives often get right about the actual system itself, the actual system, the, the I guess, legislative uh, system of it, then we would have what looks like a libertarian position on this. The reality is that you have probably broken the law today. Whoever oh, you I'm are, sure. whatever you've done, <laughs> if you haven't even left your house, you've probably broken at least one state and at least one federal law. It is that bad. Our U.S. code of laws and the state code of laws is so gargantuan and so 
uh, self-conflicting because there's so many parts that contradict itself. It is literally impossible for any human being to know all of the laws. And yet we are all expected to obey all of them as they are being often arbitrarily enforced by people who also don't know all of the laws. So we need to, you know, just basic stuff on criminal justice reform. Number one, we need to end all laws against victimless crimes. If you haven't hurt someone, if you haven't robbed someone, if you haven't violated their, their body or their life or their rights or their property, then it should not be a crime. If you sell or use drugs, that should not be a crime. If you sell or use, uh, uh, you know, uh, sex work, pro sex, uh, sex work, sex, I was going to say sex products, but, you know, if you hire a prostitute or you are once a sex product, then it should not that should not be a crime uh, and there are many people whose lives have been ruined in the criminal justice system because of this this has given way and created these massive cartels that have taken over entire cities here and entire countries overseas led to massive government corruption addicts can't get the help that they need because they risk uh, jail time for trying to get help by even admitting that they're doing drugs it's a terrible system all of that needs to end and everyone's records uh, that have any kind of victimless crimes on them have to be immediately expunged so that's number one number two we need to be holding people that are in government accountable, not just ending qualified immunity for police officers, but ending absolute immunity for politicians and prosecutors and judges and, and uh, public defenders and CPS workers. We need to end sovereign immunity for governments because if they do something wrong and hurt us, then they should be held just as accountable as any of us would be in the similar situation if we were hurting someone. Um, we need to end the militarization of the police. We need to end civil asset forfeiture. We need to end no-knock raids, which obviously would end with the war on drugs because why else do you need to break into someone's house before you uh, give them a warrant? Um, they're, they're, these are just a handful of the things that we need to be doing. We need to be looking at ending cash bail. Uh, why should being poor be a reason that you can't go home while you're still presumed innocent? There are many things we need to be looking at, uh, but they all go back to the fact that there's simply too much power in the hands of too few people. They are held too unaccountable and we need to reverse that. Yeah. Did, uh, you know, this is something uh, I, I don't know if John can maybe speak on a little bit, too, but like, I, you know, libertarians talk a lot about nullification. I don't know, like, if that's the same as like with jury nullification or even mm -hmm. how that works as a trial lawyer. I don't know if he's if they're allowed to use that or how that works. And maybe you could talk a little bit, Spike, about what nullification means on like a state level or even a county level and stuff like that. Well, jury nullification is the act of a jury basically deciding someone is not guilty, not because they don't think, not necessarily because they don't think the person did it, uh, but because they don't think it should be a law. Um, and it is perfectly legal. Uh, a jury can decide someone is not guilty for whatever reason they want to decide. You can vote not guilty and it is no one's business why. You can say, and you know, there are many judges and, and many prosecutors that try to fight this and say, oh no, you definitely can't do it. There's actually some corrupt uh, public defenders and, and, and defenders that try to end jury nullification because it would end their racket too. Uh, but the reality is a jury has every right that we should see juries as a uh, a fourth branch, if you will, of government, a, a branch that at the when the rubber meets the road, it is the people deciding if they can even tolerate this being illegal in the first place. Um, and so I, I believe very strongly in the concept of jury nullification. And we should be informing jurors about their right to decide whether or not they think something should even be illegal in the first place. That, that is a problem in Indiana. I've been, I've been practicing for 15 years. And as a trial attorney, it used to be 
you could tell the you could say, tell the jury that you are the judges of both the law and the fact. And if you don't like the law, you can acquit. And now I, I'm no longer able to argue that to a jury. It, it, I could get disbarred for that. It's against the rules of, of professional conduct. And so if I'm telling a jury to ignore the law, uh, I'm doing a disservice to the profession and that could affect my license in Indiana. So is that is that a violation of state law now or what what changed there? So it's, it's the Indiana Supreme Court that, that tells the bar association, you cannot make that argument. That is unethical for you to argue against a law because you've taken they're, they're essentially telling us you've taken an oath to follow the law. You can't tell a jury to ignore it. Um, but. But, but the same thing goes. I mean, you just make the argument a different way, and essentially right. that's what you're doing. You make a, a different type of legal argument that doesn't really fit the facts, but a jury can go ahead and acquit anyway because right. they know it's ingenuous. But, you, but in Indiana, you're no longer allowed to argue for jury notification, uh, nullification um, at a trial. And, you know, the Supreme Court in Indiana is, is very limited in, in what attorneys are allowed to say. In fact, when Sean approached me about, you know, doing this podcast, I said, you know, I, I can't really say things that I want to espouse <laughs> point of view, because I, if I say something against some of the case law that's out there, then I've said something bad against the judge. Right. And I could right. Serious trouble because in Indiana, they are extremely strict about that. They're more interested in obedience than uh, new new ideas or different ideas. So. Well, maybe you can't say it, but I certainly uh, can say it. I think that that is an absolutely blatant violation of your First Amendment right to speech. You are not telling people go out and commit crimes or go out and hurt people. You are simply saying that they are able to decide whether they think something should be legal or not. You're not even telling them necessarily that this shouldn't be legal. You're basically telling them you have the right to decide if this should be legal or not. You have the right to decide with your vote of guilty or not guilty. Um, I, I hope that that is one day challenged and, and taken to a higher court where they, I, they hopefully decide that. I mean, that, that I, I don't even, I can't even understand. I heard what the justification was from them, but, but you are still obeying the law. You're not telling people go commit crimes. You're saying that you're empowering them and telling them that they, or you're telling them they have the power to decide whether something should be a crime or not. Um, that seems, uh, I mean, that seems like just a blatant violation of your, of your right to, to free speech. Yeah. Free speech as an attorney is, uh, is quite limited. Like, like I said, it's a balancing test between, um, right. an attorney's right to free speech and then doing justice and obedience within the profession. And Indiana just happens to follow that scale. That's, that's very strongly in favor of, of obedience. So but, well, I guess then in the meantime, it's incumbent upon all of the rest of us who are not uh, attorneys who are sitting at the with the Indiana bar to inform everyone in Indiana and similar states that they have that right. Because, I mean, it, it is uh, I think if there's if there's one thing that I could tell everyone that everyone could walk away from it, it would be go be a juror and and use your vote to decide if you think this is even right or not. Um, and uh, that would probably undo a lot of the bad stuff that's coming from government. Uh, we've seen in Georgia, uh, there's a, uh, an attorney by the name of uh, Catherine Bernard with Spartacus Legal. She's effectively ended the war on marijuana in, uh, in, um, 
in Georgia because she keeps taking on cases where uh, where they are um, uh, they have a defendant who you know was tr- uh, arrested for uh, and is on trial for uh, uh, owning or distributing uh, marijuana, and she goes in and basically argues that that shouldn't be against the law, and she keeps successfully getting juries to acquit. And uh, now the uh, the state of Georgia is is scared to arrest people for uh, distribution of marijuana because they know if she keeps successfully killing their cases, that's eventually going to work its way to being precedent case law, and that that will effectively nullify um, their 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 uh, their cannabis laws. Um, so they they've basically she's basically hobbled them of being able to enforce that anymore. And and you know that's in a very very conservative state that one attorney has been able to do that. So jury nullification is an incredibly powerful tool. I, w- I wish we saw more of it. And I can yeah. see why the courts are fighting it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. What, uh, what about like, say the 10th amendment center? Uh, you know, they talk about the 10th amendment, keep talking, cause that's, that's the one with the nullification too, right? How, how does that work on a state level? So what the 10th amendment says is that anything that isn't explicitly granted to the federal government as a like written as in the constitution as a power that is delegated delegated to the federal government and isn't uh, forbidden to the state government is to be left to the states or the people. I say preferably the people, like leave it out of any government, let the people do it. So the 10th amendment is supposed to be a very powerful tool of nullification for states to be able to petition and say, hey, listen, you're telling us we can or cannot do this, or we have to do this thing or whatever, but nothing in the constitution says this. In fact, the 10th amendment was very often used uh, in, in cases where states would sue the federal government in court and petition for them to stop a, a law. And it was very successfully used very often. Then in the 1800s, the Supreme Court uh, finally got taken over by, uh, by labor unionists and activists. And they started saying, well, if you think about it, it says that the government can regulate commerce. And really anything could be a type of commerce. Well, so therefore under the Commerce Clause, yeah, the federal government can do this. So it is bad uh, court decisions that have led to the 10th Amendment becoming basically a neutered amendment. But it is supposed to be arguably the most powerful amendment or one of the most powerful amendments in the constitution. And if it wasn't for activist judges uh, trying to basically come up with a loophole to allow the Chinese exclusion acts, uh, we you know, would still have a very powerful tool to tell the federal government, no, this is not your authority. You do not have the power to do this. Uh, and we would rather leave it to the states or we'd rather it not be a, a law at all. And it, and it be left to just the people to, to decide uh, you know, in, in their own consent. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Did you guys have, uh, oh, I thought about, you know, like also like say with, because um, I know you did a lot of talking to, to people in uh, over the summer last year about, uh, you know, um, like say Black Lives Matter and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, like with the uh, identity politics, you know, one of some of my progressive friends, they can't seem to get over it that they, they want to talk about they get they get tunnel vision and they don't want to include the entirety of people that are abused by cops. And I think to myself, it's such a more powerful message if you talk about everybody who's abused by cops. You know, like the, what was the guy's name in Arizona? The cop had him crawling around on the floor. You know, that doesn't make oh, Daniel Shaver. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel yeah. Shaver. You know, they don't, they don't talk about that or Duncan Lim. You know, there's no list of all these other people that are killed by cops. It's like uh, 
man, they, they take out so much of the power of the art, their argument. You know, I, I love that the, you, you, your messaging has always been to everybody. The cops are abusing everybody. And I really appreciate that message. Well, of, of course. And it, it is important to make it clear that, you know, even though there are certain people who, because of their identity, are more likely to be abused, we do see the disproportionate treatment that's happening among the poor. Honestly, a lot of it's more based on class lines than yeah. color lines. It just so happens that because of, you know, historic things that there are, uh, you know, there are more people of, of color that tend to be poor. But the reality is it's more actually about your income level and where you live than about specifically about your, your color. Now, with that said, um, the reality is uh, anyone can get abused by government. And when that happens, they're often held unaccountable for it. Unless you're among the wealthy and powerful, uh, there's very often that you're not going to get true justice from that. Uh, I will say there are some Black Lives Matter groups like BLM 757, the Heartbeat Movement, and, and, and other groups that uh, they do talk about Ryan Whitaker and Duncan Lemp and Daniel Shaver and others uh, that are being abused. Uh, their message is, you know, yes, the, the harm is disproportionate to our community. But the reality is anyone can be abused by this. This is why we should unite and get together and, and fight against this, this rampant, unaccountable police force. Here is where the left gets this wrong. It is okay to acknowledge that disproportionate treatment, even as you say that, yes, everyone is being harmed to some degree, but some groups or some individuals within certain groups are being are more likely to be harmed and are more likely to be harmed worse and for there to be less accountability for it. There's nothing wrong with saying that. It's when your entire message becomes race. So we saw this with uh, in the debates between uh, Kamala Harris and Mike Pence. They asked Kamala Harris about the shooting of Breonna Taylor that happened because of a no-knock raid to enforce the war on drugs. That's why it happened. If there was no war on drugs and no, and there were no no-knock raids, Breonna Taylor would be alive right now, or at least she wouldn't have been killed by police, right? Right. She never mentioned that. She talked about how uh, Breonna Taylor was a young black woman and how she knew what it was like to be a young black woman and that we needed to look at racial bias, which I don't know what that would have to do with anything during a no-knock raid where they weren't even looking at anyone. They're literally just busting down a door. She implicitly and, and, and intentionally ignored the actual reason for it because if she did say why it happened, she'd have to talk about, about the fact that Republicans and Democrats, including her, created all those laws and all those orders and all those conditions that led to her death. She would have to admit that she was part of the problem. That's why you don't see it happening, because they want to make people angry and resentful. They don't want to point to the solution because the solution is kicking them out of office. Amen. Do you guys have anything else to add to that before we uh, take a little break and come back with some education? No, well said. Thank yep. you. All right, so let's take a little break and be right back. Hi, this is Sean Osborne, and I would like to share something with you. One of the key principles of libertarianism is volunteerism and charity. So I decided to make an album of songs that each song would represent a different charity and all the royalties would go to those individual charities. My song, It's Time, goes towards the Sea Shepherds. Much Braver Than I benefits the Fallen Firefighter Foundation. Over There benefits the Wounded Warriors Project. And Lend a Hand benefits Children's Hospital. 
I thought this is a great way for people to give to a charity without spending a dime. The more you listen, the more you give. So please, take time wherever you listen to music and listen to Four Others Volume 1 and share it with others. Thank you. Now back to the show. So let's talk about some education. What, what, uh, what's what's a good libertarian outlook on education, Spike? Uh, well, I mean, we saw uh, in 1979 the federal government was very worried about the fact that the United States was number one in education, and that was a big problem. Uh, and so they decided to create the Federal Department of Education, uh, and they have spent, uh, adjusted for inflation, they've spent close to four or five trillion dollars. I forget the exact amount. It's, it's, it's definitely well over three. Um, and during that time, uh, we have gone from number one in education all the way up to number 24 or 25. Uh, and uh, thanks to things like Common Core, No Child Left Behind, which should be called an increasingly num- high number of children being left behind, if they were being honest. And basically, the systemization of, he- of, of, um, of education, going from being teachers teaching students how to think, how to learn, and then applying that to the subject and turning it into this endless series of Scantron tests that do nothing to teach people how to think and do everything to just, you know, teach them to just keep, you know, circling answers uh, on a, on a, on a sheet of paper or on an app or whatever it is now, where the vast majority of students, especially younger kids don't learn that way. And then labeling those kids special needs, because part of no child left behind was, well, if you, if the kids don't do good enough in the testing, then you lose the money for that kid. Unless you label them special needs, put them on drugs and put them in classes that they shouldn't be in. That's exactly what they do. So an increasing number, increasing large percentage in many schools, a majority of students are labeled special needs, even though they are no such thing. They are put on medications. They're told there's something wrong with them. And then they're put in classes with teachers who were educated, who were trained to deal with one-on-one, you know, a student, they needed having uh, classes of like four and five students who had actual special needs that they can work in intense, you know, direct intervention work with, you know, small numbers of students that need it. And instead now they got 30, 40, 50 kids in the class, the vast majority of whom should not be there are on drugs. They should not be on and are filled with all this anger and angst over being told something's wrong with them. So now they're bullying each other. They're bullying the actual special needs students and the teachers are powerless to do anything about it. The school boards are powerless to do anything about it because they can't actually do a damn thing. All they have to do is listen to federal and state mandates and orders on every single aspect of their job. They have no autonomy, no ability to do anything. They have teachers unions that are basically telling them, hey, look, we're going to just try to get you as much money and as little accountability as possible. And at some point, the teachers shrug their shoulders and go, "Okay, fine, I guess that's how it's going to be. I'm just here for a check. And it breaks the souls of the teachers. It breaks the souls of the of the students. It breaks the parents who are uh, unable to afford a better ed- education and are being segregated in increasingly bad schools because of their zip code. It is a disgusting system. It is everything that we should expect from government managed anything. Yeah. What, so what do you think about that, Steve? 
Did we lose Steve? Nope, I'm right here. Yeah, I'm, oh. I'm in 100% agreement. This is this is how things are these days, and I don't know how do I get how do I get my fellow teachers to to lean towards this libertarian ideals. So, Steve, I actually there's a video if you look for it on YouTube. Um, there was a video I did with a group called Pace for Liberty, and I actually spoke with union member. This was during the campaign back in uh, last August. Uh, union member teachers of a, of a school system in California. I forget where in California. Okay, so these should be the people that are the most, uh, uh, you know, the most against and anti our solutions for education. Now, I showed in that video, I showed how I talk to people and how we should all be talking to people when we present our libertarian ideas. I led with empathy. Then based on empathy, once I demonstrated that I actually cared about them and their situation, then I went into knowledge ability. I showed that I actually understood the situation. And then I led into actionable solutions, how we can fix the problem. So the first 10, 15 minutes of this hour long thing that I did with these teachers, I talked with them. I, I listened to their concerns. I asked them some questions just to show that I cared and to, and to get an idea of what they were talking about. Then I spent another few minutes empathizing with them, saying all this stuff that, that I just said, listen, I've heard from you and many other teachers what it's like for you to be a teacher. You're not able to do your job. You're just handing out scantrons like some kind of machine. You're watching the the system failed these kids. You're watching them go into these special needs classes. One of the teachers there was a special needs teacher. She actually started crying when I was describing the situation and, and got very emotional. And I said, I, I see what this is like and I know what it's like and I've heard it from so many teachers and it needs to end and we have to end it. And they're going, yes, how do we end it? And I said, well, we have to look at what caused it. And I talked about the Federal Department of Education and how they ruin everything and how the literacy rate's gone down and how the... the um, uh, the math uh, uh, um, aptitude rates have gone down. Everything has gone down except the test scores, which means absolutely nothing. If you're functionally illiterate, but you're able to pass a test, that means absolutely nothing in the real world. Uh, that it is leading to increased criminalization of children in poor communities. And I, and I said, this is what happens when you take all of the money that should be going into these schools out of your communities, out of the, the pockets and the wallets of the parents and, the, and the, the people in that community, and you hand it off to state and federal governments. They rob you of your money. They rob you of your power. They rob, rob you of your decision-making abilities. They rob you of everything. And then they give you back little sprinkles of your own money with all sorts of strings attached with what you have to do to be able to apply and be able to qualify for that money. And they pass laws that make it illegal for you to do some of the things that you need to do. Just in case you were going to say, you know what, I don't even need the money. I'm just going to do it my own way. They make it impossible for you to do education. And then I went to the solution. The solution is we end the federal department of education. We end the state departments of education. And we put all that power and money and freedom back in the hands of the parents and the teachers and the administrators in your schools, the actual stakeholders in your communities who want to know, who wanted to be able to decide what your schools look like, how they operate, how they can best function for the kids. And you can work with other schools and cooperate and see what works and what doesn't work and, and work as a network of people voluntarily operating with one another. They were also excited that they joined the Libertarian Party and said that they'd be advocating for these solutions. Now, keep in mind, this is everything that should be against us. Union member, California school teacher, 
And by the end of this conversation, they were excited for what I sold as either full privatization of education, or at the very least, bringing it down to the local government level. I kind of left that part vague because ultimately they can decide that. Do you want a local school board deciding it, or do you just want the individual schools and parents deciding it? Whatever it is, it'd be a hell of a lot better than we have now. I didn't try to sell them on school choice. I didn't try to sell them on you know a gradual reduction in, in payments. I didn't try to sell them on watered down milk toast half measures. I told them the problem was government and we needed to get them out of it. But first I showed them I cared. Then I showed them that I understood the situation. Then I showed them that we had an answer to fix it. That sounds There's great. What, Steve? I said, that sounds great. We need to yeah. video and uh, put a link to it. Yeah. I can, I can find that video. Cool. There, there's a really cool interview with this guy. Uh, I think his name is John Taylor Gatto on um, YouTube. And I had heard him get interviewed on the Peace Revolution podcast, I don't know, mm -hmm. 15 years ago, 10 years ago, something like that. And he won Teacher of the Year in New York State and then New York City. And then they kept asking him how he did it. And he quit because he said he what he, you know, he, to explain himself, he would get fired anyhow. Cause he said, he goes, I wasn't going <laughs> to continue to harm children anymore and teach the stupid ways that they teach. And he, you know, you can look it up on YouTube. It's a great interview. It's like, I mean, there's like hours of it. I had no yeah. idea he was a libertarian halfway through. He goes, you know, said something about being a libertarian. I was like, oh shit, man, should have, should have known it, you know, because that. he, he said he just threw everything out the window and he just, he just let kids learn what they were good how, at. How were, how were you the best teacher in new york i committed crimes like you literally have to break the law to be a good teacher yeah. in new york yeah that's what he said he said he said he wouldn't follow that system because he would he didn't want to hurt children and he yeah. retired because of it two yeah. years in a row <laughs> i love it yeah so that, that that was really cool um like you know like for me when i went to school uh, uh they since i'm blind or legally blind uh, I tried to take a radio TV class and they told me I couldn't take that class because I couldn't see the, the playlist of the music they wanted. They wouldn't let me take it home and learn it and nothing like that. And, you know, but they would let me do PE and play baseball and stuff where I could get hit in the head with a ball. You know, they had no problem with that. So I, I don't know the mentality of like public schools sometimes is kind of crazy. That is so stupid. Yeah. I had, uh, I heard today on, um, uh, on, on another podcast that they were talking about, uh, they say that 60% of, I think in, in California, it's 60 something percent, 65% of public school teachers send their kids to private schools as well. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Some of the, uh, uh, I think either most or at least a couple of the teachers I talked to on this, they said, yeah, I don't want my kids in private school. They actually use this as a threat punishment uh, against the ki their kids when they're acting bad. If you don't act right, I'm going to put you in public school. When you consider the <laughs> fact that our public schools are used as a threat of punishment by the people who work in them because they know it sucks so much and their kids know that it sucks so much that they can actually get their kids to act right under the threat that they will be subjected to the schooling system that most people in this country can't afford not to use and are segregated in even worse ones. That is what a government-run 
schooling system looks like. It's VA for schooling. And let's be clear about something. School choice is just Medicare for all for schooling. It's better than VA for schooling, but it is not what the libertarian solution is. I'm not against it as a step bridge down to the eventual disillusion of government schooling, but it is not the solution. Yes, it would be better for parents to be able to have their, their own tax money that's being assigned to them portable and, and taken to schools that they want to. That gives some level of free market inter, inter, innovation and, and some level of accountability, but that is not the solution. That is still government schooling. And there are still going to be all sorts of problems that are going to come from that. And it could actually lead to the end of private schooling because you would end up with a situation where the majority of private and charter schools are actually the client of the government because now it's the government paying for most of their students. So it actually could end up being worse in the long run. Uh, again, I'm not against school choice as a step down process towards getting towards, you know, fully privatized or at least fully localized schools schools, but the answer is decentralization. In all things, healthcare, education, um, higher education, housing, food. Uh, look at what's happened. I know I'm no one going, going off on a ramp, but we just saw what happened. There was a hacking of one of the major food suppliers in this country. And so for a while, they were thinking we might, you know, have a, have a, a, a you know, big runs on the cost of beef because, you know, a, a large percentage of the beef we're getting comes from this massive company. Well, the reality is we wouldn't have the gigantic, inefficient, bloated, wasteful factory farms if it wasn't for the Department of Agriculture and agricultural regulations that make it increasingly prohibitively expensive for smaller farms to even operate, while at the same time, the Department of Agri Agriculture is giving subsidies to small farmers to not grow food. This is what happens when government gets involved. This is what happens when you put too much power in the hands of too few people and let them lord it over us with our stolen money. It is a system of inequality. It is a system of harm. It is a system of bad solutions and bad outcomes and bad provision of service. And this is what happens when you don't respect people's individual autonomy and self-ownership and sovereignty, when you don't respect the principle of non-aggression, when you don't respect the idea that people do better voluntarily working together than having someone standing on the top of a hill, pointing a gun at everyone's head and telling them, nope, this is how you're going to do it. And that's what we've worked to fight against every single day. Hell yeah. Yeah. You want to give a good anti-war message to wrap us up for tonight? If you guys, unless you guys got anything else to talk about education. No, I'm good. You want to throw out uh, a good anti-war message to wrap up with? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, I've met millions of Americans. Like maybe, like, like maybe Israel-Palestine, like, you know, because to me, I think we ought to stop throwing uh, gas on the fire with more money. Yeah, let's, let's talk about the Israel-Palestine thing. You know, I'm, I'm Jewish, so everyone, you know, it, it, no matter what I say, everyone, someone's going to be angry at me. I'm either, <laughs> either going to say something that isn't, uh, you know, uh, Zionist enough because uh, I'm Jewish uh, and they're, I'm, therefore I'm a self-hating Jew, or I'm going to say something that isn't, you know, uh, 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 condemning strongly enough of, of Israel, and then therefore I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a uh, you know, I'm, I'm a dirty Jewish Zionist, so I can't win, but let's talk about this. This is a perfect example of what happens when people don't respect property rights and governments get involved in something that they never should have. Does the problem of the Jewish resettlement was already being settled by private owners working voluntarily, starting in the 1800s, as things started to really heat up against Jews in Europe, in Russia, uh, in, in Eastern Europe, in, in parts of Western Europe, and even in places like Yemen and North Africa, you had Jews that they were called the new Yeshuv, who were going 
to Palestine, which under that time was under the occupation, very light, unenforced occupation. There wasn't much government there, but it was technically under the occupation of the Ottoman Empire, the Turks. And so you had Jews going there with their own money, buying property from either um, from either Arab landowners and, and building communities there, or buying money, buying land from absentee Jewish landowners that owned property. Uh, they were called the old Yeshuv uh, that, that had always lived there. And they were going there. And for the most part, they were living in harmony with the Arabs that were there. There were the occasional skirmishes and disagreements over property lines and stuff like that, which is what happens in any situation of property rights. But there was no wars. There was no genocides. There was no occupations. These things were usually settled fairly easily. And they lived, as Jews and Muslims typically do, in relative peace and harmony. Because remember, for the vast majority of the, of the history of Jews and Muslims together, they have been able to live together under both Jewish occupation and Muslim occupation uh, under in 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 peace in relative peace and harmony okay yeah most people don't realize that yeah that's this this whole thing oh they've been fighting for thousands of years. usually no. they're fighting christians together yeah like that's the history of jews and muslims is fighting yeah. against white people that's that's usually that's like the actual long-term history of jews and muslims uh yeah. with this little aberration happening most recently so now Coming into the early 1900s, after World War One, so we can thank Woodrow Wilson for this and Archduke Ferdinand for this. After World War One ended, they split up the Ottoman Empire, and with the starting with the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which was between the British government and the French government, they carved up the Middle East, and the British got what they called the British Mandate of Palestine, which includes now modern-day Israel. Uh, uh, the Palestinian territories or Palestine and and, tra- and Jordan, which they called Transjordan. Um, and they basically said, okay, this part is going to be uh, Palestine for the Jews, and this part's going to be Transjordan for the Arabs. And they literally just arbitrarily wrote uh, wrote lines on a sheet of paper based on like geographical lines or based on, you know, tribal chieftains that had, you know, worked out deals with them during the war. I mean, it was the most corrupt thing on earth. And they started shipping Jews in and putting them on land that was not theirs and was not the British t- land to give away. This was privately owned land. They were now not respecting property rights. And there were some cases where there were Jews who had land in what had been considered now Transjordan and other parts of, 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 of the British mandate of Palestine that had their land taken away and given to Arabs. It was mostly Arab land being given to Jews, but there was also some Jewish land given to Arabs. So the bottom line is everyone's getting screwed in this, but the Arabs were mostly getting screwed. And they're now using this because the the Europeans finally figured out a way to get rid of all their Jews. They're dumping them in Palestine, okay? And the Jews being sent there often are being sent with no other alternative. They're being told, get the hell out of whatever country you're in and you get to live here now. It's either that or you know that you don't have another alternative. You have to go here. So their property rights are being respected. They're having their property in their, in their homeland in Europe seized and they're being shipped back to what they're being told is their homeland that they've never lived in, okay? This creates the seeds for what ends up boiling over in the 1930s, the 1940s, the 1950s, the 1960s with successive uh, uh, in t- continued encroachments on the private property rights of Arabs, of Palestinians, which then leads to the uh, War of Independence, the Yom Kippur War, the Six Day War, uh, the intifadas that are happening now, the occupations that are happening now. All of this started because 
European governments, Western powers, and then eventually the US government starting in 1948, would not just leave the people there the hell alone to figure it out themselves. And now, like you said, you have foreign governments that are using these governments and organizations as proxies to fight their never ending cold wars against each other. And so you've got $3 billion of taxpayer stolen money being handed to a government that has a vested interest in keeping this war going forever, because they then turn around and give it to the US military industrial complex. So it's just another giveaway to the MIC. Okay, so and then it gets even worse, because now Israel, they didn't like dealing with uh, Fatah, the PLO, because they felt like, you know, that they were too extreme, and they couldn't make a good peace partner. And they thought, you know what the PLO needs an enemy. Well, the PLO was basically a secular pan-Arabist group. They were basically socialists, and they were aligned with the Ba'ath Party of Saddam Hussein and uh, and Bashar Assad or, or whatever Bashar Assad's father's name I forget in Syria. And these were these were se- and and uh, and, um, and 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 Nasser in in um, in, uh, in Egypt. These were not uh, you know radical Muslims. They were probably atheists. They were secular. They were socialists. They were pan-Arabists. And they thought, well, you know what? If we created a religious party in Palestine, they would hate the PLO because they're uh, apostates and religious Muslims hate apostates of the Muslim religion more than they hate anyone else. So we're going to create Hamas. And Hamas is going to kill the PLO and the PLO is going to kill Hamas and we will have solved our problem. Well, how does creating terror groups work for us? It doesn't work for anyone. It works to create a bigger problem, and that's what happened. So now Hamas is stronger than the PLO and Fatah have ever been before. And now they often work together against the Jews. So now you have Hamas who puts uh, you know, rocket launchers in schools and in homeless shelters, and they're brutal to the people of Palestine. And of course, the Palestinians don't have an alternative because the Israelis are brutal to the people of Palestine. And you know, you've got Israelis that are caught in the crossfire as well. No one is being served by this except the warmongers, the religious zealots, the military industrial complex, terror leaders, all of the worst people that you can think of, central bankers, every villain is helped by this and everyone else is destroyed by it. And it all started as all of these things do when too much power is put in the hands of too few people and they start making arbitrary decisions and forcing everyone else into it completely irrespective of their property rights. Hell yeah. That's great. You know, I think a lot of people don't understand all that. Uh, I think you wrap that up there really nicely with that. And unfortunately, and I'm sorry I ranted for so long, there is no two minute answer for this, right? Like it's it's easy to go, oh, it's those filthy Hamas, Islamo fascists, this dirty Jewish Zionist. It's not. It is. This is what government looks like. It looks like war and occupation and death and radicalism. It looks like every terrible thing that we hate. That's right. And we just throw more money at it. Yes. And bombs. <laughs> yep. Money and bombs and blood. So what you what do you have coming up in the future? Uh, what, what do you got going on in the next few months and everything? Oh, man, few months. Uh, I can tell you what I got going on this month. So th- uh, this yeah. month I've got uh, uh, this weekend, I'm going to be in Lakeland, Florida for the Libertarian Party of Florida Convention. Uh, so if you go to uh, LPF.org, I think if you look up, actually, if you go to SpikeCohen.com, it's all of these events are here. Um, and you can go to SpikeCohen.com and find out. I'll be in the Libertarian Party of Florida Convention this weekend. Next weekend, I will be in Greensboro, North Carolina for the uh, North Carolina Libertarian Party Convention. Uh, then the following week, I will 
will be at the Soaring Eagle Casino and Resort in, I forget where in Michigan, uh, for the Libertarian Party of Michigan uh, uh, convention. I'll actually be there for my birthday. Um, and then the following week, I, weekend, I believe I'll be in Chicago for a 4th of July thing. Then the following weekend, I will be in... Well, oh, I'll be doing a shooting range event in Tampa with the philosopher and Jack Lloyd. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then uh, the weekend after that, I'll be in Tunica, Mississippi, I think. And then the week after that, I will be in uh, uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia, for the Concerned Veterans of America event that they're having me uh, keynote at. Uh, and then I, it starts getting hazy after that, guys. Uh, if you go to SpikeCohen.com, uh, you, can, you can keep up with my events. Uh, and also, this summer, everything is changing. We are about to set America free in an innovative way that we've never done before. Uh, and I can't wait to uh, tell you more about this. If you want to be among the first to find out exactly what we're going to be doing starting this summer, uh, go to SpikeCohen.com slash first and sign up to be among the first to find out. Sound, sounds very interesting. Sounds like fun because that's what we need is some some fun after the last year and a half that we've had. Yes. Yes. Are, you, are you still working with People for Liberty too? I do live streams with them. I don't have a formal relationship with People for Liberty, but I do. I, I get on their live streams and I, you know, I love the people involved with it. You know, uh, Dan, uh, my I call him Rabbi Dan, Dan Fishman. He's great. Um, you know, I, I love everyone there. And I, uh, I'm certainly, I, I don't, so I don't work for or with them in a formal capacity. Yeah, I but know Dr. Jorgensen I, 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 does now. Yeah, Joe, Joe is the president there at, at oh, okay. for Liberty. Yeah, uh, good organization. I, I, I don't have a formal relationship with them, but I, I'm definitely, uh, uh, anytime, they, anytime that, I, that I can be a part of any of their, you know, day-long live streams and stuff like that, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, you're, you're a great uniter, man. You talk to all the libertarians. And I really appreciate it. Thank you, man. And it was great seeing you again in uh, in yeah. uh, Fresno a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that was that was great, really great meeting you. You know, next time, uh, are you coming out to California anytime soon for our convention or anything? I well, I hope to be back for the next convention. Um, I'm sure I'll be back in California sooner than later. Even at that convention, there were a lot of local affiliate heads that said, if we put together an event and we can make it work on your calendar, will you come out? And I'm like, yes. So I'll pro I'm sure I'll be back sooner than later, uh, later this year. Um, but I, I don't believe I have anything on the books as of yet, but I'm sure well, I'll be back. Uh, yeah, well, we definitely look forward to seeing here in Los Angeles. Absolutely. I'd love to come back. I had a great time yeah. in Huntington Beach. Yeah, that's great. Did you guys have anything else before we wrap up? No, thanks a lot, Spike. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you, you very John much. And Steve. Yeah, thank you. We really appreciate it. And man, thanks for all the stuff you do for us all, man. You're, you're, Absolutely. A, you're a national treasure. Oh, that means, well, thank you. That means a lot to me. <laughs> thank and Listen, thank you for what you guys are doing. You know, I, I'm only one person. It is what you and, and everyone listening to this, it's what you are doing in your communities every day you are why liberty will win. We will end the wars. We will end taxation. We will end the Fed. We will end the war on drugs. We will set people free from cages and undue criminal records and injustices. We will set this country and this planet free. And it will be because of the work that you do. You are the power. And I am grateful to be in this movement with you. Yes. Thank you very much, sir. Talk to you thank soon. You. And uh, come you. back anytime, man. Uh, I'd be happy to, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.